Hi, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Well, uh, so welcome to Hot and Bothered number seven. Um, to our listeners, uh, so Kate and I both happen to be in Philadelphia right now, and we thought we'd do something a little different and record just like an impromptu live episode. The only guest is, the, is Trump's America. Uh, so just like reacting to this election, trying to figure out what it means, how do we feel about it, what's going next. You know, as, and as always, from the perspective of, of our podcast, which is talking about climate politics from the perspective of the 99%. As always, we're sponsored by Descent Magazine. Uh, and Trump was elected two days ago. It's Thursday today. Uh, and, you know, just about 48 hours ago, um, we got news that, you know, was shocking to me, maybe shocking to you, Daniel, uh, not shocking to some people, um, which maybe we can talk about later. Uh, but yeah, we have, uh, a man who in the past has denied climate change, uh, has softened a little bit on that question, but either way, uh, is poised to just launch into total extractivism, uh, for the next four years and appoint people like Sarah Palin to the Department of Interior. And we'll get into all of those details, uh, later, all those really fun, uh, facets of, of the Trump transition and uh, future prospective administration. Um, but I think to start off, we just wanted to take a kind of gut check and, uh, you know, talk about what it's been like the last few days. I feel like there's a special kind of uh, mourning, grieving process that uh, we, we've both gone through along with, you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, millions. millions of people, tens of millions. <laughs> millions of people, tens of billions of unborn the popular vote, in fact, uh, of this country, yeah, uh, yeah, of yeah. the population of this country that voted. Um, yeah, and just talk about what, what it's been like. It's been a crazy, crazy time. So, yeah. Daniel, what, what, is your, uh, what has your past two days looked like here in, here in Philadelphia? Yeah, I mean, uh, election night, terrible. So bad. You know, I still, I think, I, I don't know about you, like until one in the morning, just like hoping for those votes to come in in Milwaukee or something. Um, uh, yesterday, today, today worse, today worse, sleeping, not a major factor. Um, you know, I guess like my, I, I don't know if this is barbaric, you know, I, I keep, I keep thinking so I'm Canadian and, you know, if you, I, I do my research in Brazil and if you follow politics there, okay. What's happened in Brazil is, from the perspective of domestic politics, probably worse, more scary. The University of the Landless Movement has already been invaded. Live gunfire in the University of the Landless People's Movement, which is a beautiful place that I myself have visited. Um, a real kind of restoration of the dictatorship there, which is, of course, very recent in Brazil. Um, so you think, okay, from the perspective of, like, global tragedy, a civil war in the Congo in which four million people died. Okay, Trump in America, you know, doesn't have a huge base of support. We can do this, but when you think about things like climate politics or the ability to just destroy foreign policy, but especially climate change and losing four years right now, this timeline is, is so devastating. To me, I, to me, anyways, that's what really brings it home. I can get out of the bubble of worrying about what it's going to be like in this country. And, you know, my nephews are afraid to go outside. Uh, they live in Boston. They're Latino. Um, but, but just thinking about the big picture, there's no relief. You can't zoom out enough unless you're thinking about cosmology or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and something I wrote kind of the day after uh, I was talking about, you know, how we don't sort of have scripts to understand a Trump residency in the U.S. Like we can we can look to, you know, maybe someone like Silvio Berlusconi, maybe someone like Slobodan Milosevic in, in Serbia, these kind of authoritarian, like swaggering uh, strongmen uh, who, who were horrible. I mean, I like, Milosevic more, more so than Berlusconi, probably, um, as the butcher of the Balkans, as he's known. But, um, yeah, we, we really don't have a script for this. It's, it's pretty, uh, unprecedented. I mean, just to like do a sort of quick review, Trump has, has threatened to, you know, imprison journalists or round up and deport 11 million people. And maybe the scariest thing beyond just like the things Trump has said, which are outrageous, is the sort of, vile kind of base of support of, you know, everyone from the Ku Klux Klan to the alt-right to Milo Yiannopoulos to Breitbart, who he's, you know, not only sort of stirred up and brought to the surface, but also empowered. I mean, Breitbart ran his campaign uh, and and is a xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic outlet. Um, 
so <laughs> kind of the point of saying that, uh, you know, beyond, beyond those things is that I, I got to write that and I got to kind of distract myself from, from the actual sort of, um, pain of this. I mean, this is like a really sort of dark, dark moment, uh, for many, many reasons, but especially, yeah, when you do think about climate change and it really is hard to kind of work yourself out of feeling like this is game over. It's really hard to work yourself out of feeling like this is it. Like this is, you know, we've just doomed ourselves. And I think, um, you know, Daniel, we talked about this in the last show, but I think the kind of working assumption that at least I have was, you know, we're going to have four more years of kind of neoliberal Democrats uh, in power. And that's a script we know. That's a script we know uh, from Obama, even to a certain extent, um, Bush was, was, you know, a, a very conservative president, but uh, wasn't radically different from, I think, what we'd probably see under under Clinton. Um, this is, this is you know, new, new territory. I think, I mean, I was, this is different for you, I was, uh, I think, 16 when Obama was elected. So that's really the only sort of politics I know is uh, politics under a Democratic administration. And, and I've never organized under, under a Republican administration, and no one has really organized under uh, Trump administration, which which seems like a different beast. So, uh, thinking about all that, I spent you know the better part of the last day in bed, um, and I've been like sort of sitting on this article, which maybe you know will be up by the time um, by the time this goes up. Of, of what do we do? <laughs> like, what is the what is uh, the climate movement, but in particular leftists in the climate movement uh, and people who are concerned about the future of this planet? What is our our map? For, for moving ahead uh, in, in this moment. Yeah, so, I mean, what she said. I'm also sitting on an article about what to do to do next. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess just to lay out a couple things here, I mean, I think what we want to figure out in this conversation. So, okay, one, yeah, like, you know, swastika is appearing, all, testimonials now being shared on Facebook and, and Twitter, which is uh, where you're seeing essentially people of color finding, you know, swastikas written on bathroom door, just like the worst, worst. And um, I mean, you're basically looking, I think, at a revival of probably lynching culture, at least in parts of the country. I mean, the extent to which law enforcement is going to feel empowered by this. I mean, we know this from looking at other countries, from looking at the past. This is a, a climate in which all kinds of brutal, brutal racial violence and other sorts of things can happen. Um, at the same time, there is this issue of, of climate change. And it's not a question of minimizing uh, one in favor of the other, I think. But uh, I guess for those of us who are very worried about climate change, as, as one should be, you know, our challenge is how do you mount a politics that is attentive to both issues, not, not where you fall into this trap. The climate has been, I think, always in danger of falling into. Of just this, It is intellectually, we understand, an encompassing, all-encompassing issue. But in practice, it becomes a special interest concern of a small number of relatively middle-class white people, at least in the United States, clearly not around the world. Uh, and, you know, of course, each of us here in this podcast is, is white and is not likely to face the full, immediate, brutal brunt of racial violence under Trump. But, you know, in movements, connected to movements, wanting to, to put those things together. And I guess I just want to say one last thing, and then I th maybe we can break it up and uh, get the momentum rolling. But it is, I think... You know, I mean, Trump got about 60 million votes. Hillary got about 60 million votes. She got a few more than Trump. In 2012, uh, and then Obama got 65 million. In 20, 2008, Obama got 70 million votes. In each of those elections, the Republicans got about 60 million votes. So there has not been a surge in support for the right. There's been a bit of a scrambling uh, in the electorate. But fundamentally, the tragedy is that Trump was not elected on the or it's not a tragedy. I mean, Trump is beatable. Like that Paul, you know, 60 million, add a few million if he'd had a real turnout operation. This is beatable. We can beat this. But we have some really hard years uh, ahead, assuming that we get things right. But, you know, so it's not, Trump is not invincible, uh, electorally. And yeah, here we are. Here we are, yeah. And, and something that's been really hopeful too, you know, not to, um, I mean, not to overstate this, but it has been really encouraging to see tens of thousands of people come into come into the streets in the last couple of days. I mean, there were 10,000 people who, you know, on a dime turned out in New York. Um, there was a huge demonstration today in Philly, uh, Oakland last night, you know, dozens of people, I think, got arrested. Um, so there, and in, in, I think, Minneapolis tonight, I saw, um, or Milwaukee, I'm not sure. 
you know, thousands of people also in the street in Chicago. Um, so there is this, this real sort of palpable sense, and like you said earlier, Daniel, like, you know, the, the kind of neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party is effectively dead. Clinton's project is dead. And, you know, for, for those of us who have been wishing for that to come for, for some time, this is a really bittersweet way for it to happen. Um, and, you know, to get to something else that you, you brought up, uh, I, I think there is this, this risk, which, as you said, always exists with climate politics of, of divorcing it from, um, from uh, projects for racial justice, for economic justice, for um, feminism. Uh, and, you know, it, it is a real challenge for, for folks on the kind of left of the climate movement right now to articulate the ways those things are affected. Because I think, you know, there are these sort of obvious ways in which a Trump presidency is bad. Him and all of his followers and, and supporters, um, I'm in kind of the highest levels, his advisors and such, um, are basically all five deniers. I mean, so Trump, yeah, so Trump appoints to head the transition operation for the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, Myron Ebel, who is like a known villain on climate change, uh, competitive enterprise institute, um, longtime climate denier. So far, essentially, he is putting in, like, you, it couldn't be worse. Right. Than Myron Ebel. I mean, like, uh, you pick up a book about climate politics written by a sane person, and he's in there as, like, the Darth Vader. Right. And he's choosing heads of oil companies, potentially, to run the Department of Energy. Yeah. Uh, tapping, you know, similar people to run FERC, um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee uh, Commission, which has, you know, untold power to determine how energy is produced in this country. Um, so, you know, there are those reasons. There are those, like, very glaring kind of reasons why Trump has to see it's bad. But if you also think about what a, a high carbon future looks like, um, or even the scenarios we're already lapped into. I mean, if we were to, you know, transition to a sort of socialist government tomorrow, uh, globally, we would still be probably on track for some level of emissions, uh, some level of, of, of sort of, you know, climate impacts uh, to come in the United States. And, uh, you know, what that future looks like is really bleak when you have regressive immigration policy. Uh, climate change is going to create millions and millions of people. There are people in New York who are already being displaced uh, as a result of, of, you know, storms like Sandy, which are only becoming more, um, more common. Uh, and whole parts of the country are, are close to underwater, uh, if you look at the Gulf. Uh, so we have these, this, already this kind of policy boondoggle about how to deal with communities which are, are about to be underwater uh, and add to that this sort of regressive, um, you know, regressive administration. Let's not forget that Trump uh, spent his kind of young years as a as a real estate mogul, uh, excluding black people from housing in New York. Uh, so this is kind of what we're walking into is is uh, both, you know, a set of highly regressive climate policies, but also uh, a set of policies around and, and beliefs and, and dogmas around uh, around race, around immigration, um, that that, you know, will only only get worse as as the climate crisis accelerates. Yeah. So we're in Philadelphia. The difference in number of people living in floodplains between a two-degree warming and four-degree warming by the end of the century, 100,000 people. So 100,000 people live in land that would be flooded, uh, additional land that would be flooded between a two-degree and a four-degree scenario. If you take the 20 largest cities in the world, I did some back-of-the-envelope math a few days ago, there are 90 million people in that situation. So not even accounting for population growth. 90 million people right now live in land that would be flooded by the difference in warming from two to four degrees Celsius. Um, which is where, where we're headed. So, um, okay. So that's bad. So what's good or what's, what's out there? I mean, I think, you know, one thing we can talk about is, is jobs. So like, you know, Kate, you've been talking to Luna workers. Let's get into this. But like, uh, the funny thing about climate, economic justice issues, three, dem I said this in the last podcast, three, three democratic candidates, O'Malley, Sanders, Clinton in the primaries. Uh, in the primaries. And, and O'Malley and Sanders both propose enormous clean energy, climate-oriented infrastructure plans to create, I think in Sanders' case, close to, uh, somewhere around 10 million jobs is the plan. I mean, are you going to get to that? Who knows? But huge numbers of jobs. So basically plans in which the job plan and the climate plan is the same plan. Uh, come end of the summer, the fall, Clinton takes a version of that, drops it in the drawer, tells nobody. And, you know, uh, like, Closing out the campaign or something like uh, in 2012, people forget like Obama would run whole ads about a single tire factory in Ohio talking about jobs 
and Chinese trade practices. So it's in the democratic playbook and there is this opportunity for Clinton to have that kind of middle class, working class coalition around climate jobs. The numbers are there, just doesn't bother. So I don't know, I mean, I think you, one of the things we, we've thought about discussing, Kate, is like, you know, are there even green collar workers who are voting for Trump? Is that like, is there any way that the kind of green job idea has it made any progress at all in democratic circles? Is it, does it exist in Republican circles? I mean, I don't know, how do we, how, how can we think about that? Or, you know, workers, uh, how does the labor movement relate to the climate movement? And I'm just throwing a whole stew of things at UK, basically. <laughs> this is what happens with an unscripted podcast. <laughs> It's just ratatouille. <laughs> yeah, but ratatouille is good. It's a good, sturdy meal. That's that's uh, you know sustained people through the centuries. Despite um, that little bitterness, mm-hmm. but it is sustaining. Yeah. Um, so yeah, on 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 the issue of green jobs, um, part of where this is coming from for me is uh, last week I, in the middle of pre-election chaos, got to report uh, a really interesting to report piece uh, about labor for Standing Rock. Um, which the terms of the terms of how labor kind of shows up for environmental issues over the last several years has been kind of predictable uh, in that you have a kind of small handful of progressive unions who are reliably kind of allies on on justice fights. Um, so National Nurses United, Communications Workers of America, uh, United Electrical Workers, and a handful of others. Transit unions sometimes, right? Transit TWU unions, yeah, ATU, yeah, um, it's always there. Um, but something that's happened uniquely uh, is is that uh, Lyuna rank and file workers have actually been. So Lyuna is uh, Laborers International Union of North America, I believe. Don't maybe don't quote me on that. Um, I so I encountered them after Sandy. There are a bunch of uh, Lyuna workers in New York City, yeah. very active in the yeah. post-Sandy reconstruction so fights. So a mix of kind of public sector workers uh, and folks who build pipelines. Uh, yeah. they represent a lot of pipeline workers. Um, and they also represent, uh, circling back to how we started on this, uh, they also represent workers on wind turbines. And a lot of the workers who um, build pipelines also build wind turbines because the nature of these jobs is that they are temporary. Um, you know, any, any kind of construction work is temporary uh, because you're building something that gets built. Um, and so I was talking to uh, this guy who traveled out to Standing Rock a couple weeks ago, uh, and... He has worked both on pipelines for about the last eight years and on wind turbines. And he said, you know, I, uh, when I work on a natural gas pipeline, it's the best job I ever had. Uh, I can make $52,000 a year uh, working eight months out of it. Uh, and, you know, the days are long, they're hard, uh, but it's a very reliable paycheck. Whereas when I work on a green project through Leona, uh, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills. It's, it's very precarious. There's all sorts of reasons for delays uh, can be tied up because of, you know, weather or whatever. Uh, and he's, he's the lucky guy, right? Like a huge number yeah. of these, of these green jobs are not union at all. Yeah. yeah. Like no one is setting up a solar plant because they love unions. Especially in solar. Solar yeah. is, is more because it's so sort of dominated by, um, these, these kind of like home, home installer companies. Uh, yeah. it's a sort of wild west in terms of unionization. Um, yeah, so this is this is sort of lucky one, and and part of what he was saying to to kind of wrap this up is that uh, it's part of the reason people are so skeptical of green jobs and so skeptical of yeah. this idea uh, that that we can you know just have this massive jobs program because we don't actually talk about the quality of green jobs uh, when we talk about it, and so I think part of you know maybe how we navigate out of the situation and kind of build political will around a green jobs package is to, to say they're going to be good jobs and really talk in specifics about how much money can people actually expect to take home. Because if you talk to a worker who is in these industries and is part of a union uh, yeah. that, that works on green projects, they'll say these are not good jobs. So talk and do, right? I mean, we've been throwing shade at Clinton, but Obama was president for eight years, passed a almost, almost $1 billion stimulus plan, did create a bunch of jobs, did exceed a lot of clean energy projects. And what I'm hearing, uh, Kate, and it, it fits with what we know about the landscape, is whoever was in charge, and I guess the answer would be Obama, <laughs> ultimately, nobody made sure that these new jobs, this new energy sector, was really producing good quality union jobs. That I think that's such a great, I mean, for, as a sociologist, like the comparison you have there is perfect. It's one person who's worked on both sectors gets what's going on, is going out to, to Standing Rock in the Dakotas, really cares about this issue, an outlier, but we'll just tell you, look, I've worked both, and one is good and the other one's bad. 
and the one that's good is bad for our grandchildren and the one that's bad is good for us so um so that's fucked up yeah we're not supposed to say that i think on descent podcast (laughs) Because if you're 12 years old and listening to a small magazine's well, left-hand climate you. podcast, you know, good on you. Good on you deserve to hear a swear word. <laughs> you don't even have to listen to rap for it, although we encourage you to listen to both. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, getting back to this question of, of what is, you know, coalition building look like in this moment, um, part of the reason these jobs aren't good also is because they're newer than pipeline jobs. Pipeline jobs have been around for for years and years and years, uh, and labor is in, is in this really constricted moment after 40 years of attack under under neoliberalism, where they're not willing, uh, for any number of factors, to negotiate good contracts with turbine builders. Uh, and so, you know, I think part of the issue we have with green jobs isn't just saying that these are going to be good jobs and high quality jobs. It's actually, you know, rebuilding the power of organized labor to make sure they can be. Uh, because it's not, you know, we, we can have all sorts of conversations about job quality, but unless you have a kind of organized force to protect those those jobs, to bargain collectively uh, with employers, then, you know, you're fucked. And again, I mean, in, in public, I mean, you know, so this is not going to happen under Trump. Trump is not out there to, to make union jobs, um, busting unions in his own hotels. But, um, you know, down the line, I think that there is a, you know, as we talk about state power and kind of trying to, you know, Green New Deal... Uh, I think you're exactly right. You need the you need it to come from the top, the bottom, and the top, where the the public policy really has power to set job conditions in in, in the markets, which are public jobs, and and could do a lot better. So let's let's um let's keep this moving. Let's let's get to this issue of the big green groups. Okay, so we're talking about isolated greens. Uh, I guess the dilemma for them, uh, you posed this, um, Kate, earlier before we we turn on the mics. Um, you know, cooperate or not cooperate with Trump. This is everybody's dilemma. Uh, so. You know, you go on CNN, and uh, what's the challenge? Bringing the country back together. Uh, everybody wants to be united right now, uh, behind behind the fear or whatever. So, like, um, you know, what, like, what exactly? Uh, but it's a challenge. Like, what are you supposed to do? Um, new president coming. I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, Kate, what are your thoughts on this issue? I mean, do you think that let's let's list some names here? I mean, we're not talking about 350.org here. I think they've really set out, you know, taken a pretty strong stance consistently on behalf of, of working people's movements, racial justice movements, but like NRDC, National Resource Defense Council, CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, they've never met a carbon tax that they didn't like, and they've never met anything that they did like that wasn't a carbon tax. Um, don't even, they don't even care about investment, pure tax rebate. Okay, Al Gore, uh, you know, Al Gore. Put out a statement today saying how excited he was to work with Donald yeah. Trump in the White House. Yeah, Al Gore seems to have a real problem with what happens after the Democrats lose the popular vote. <laughs> Um, does not bring out his fighting spirit. <laughs> but a few years later, I'm sure he'll be saying some really trenchant things uh, about Trump in, in a few years once, once he's gone through another beard. Yeah, Elon Musk, for God's sakes, I don't know if I... But I mean, whatever, there's like 25 million of these like gigantic groups. I mean, I, again, I think Sierra Club maybe has, has taken a pretty hard progressive turn, but, it, you know, uh, the Environmental um, Defense Fund, I mean, God, I'm talking about them is just like, why not just... I'm like, why not have a podcast on stretching or something? I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I can talk about anything. Like, but yeah, so anyways, what do these guys do? I mean, what's, what, what should they do? How does the left react to what they're, you know, what's your message to Al Gore? Is it fuck off? Is it, you know, come for a tea and let's talk about this? Like, Fun fact is, is one of the uh, recorders that we're, we're recording this on is, is uh, formerly property of Al Gore, which is a long story. I won't tell oh, for the right. sake that's of time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any, anyway, uh, yeah, I think it's a real dividing line for, for these sort of like mega green organizations. And big green is a word that gets tossed around a lot. Conservation voters, legal conservation voters. Yes, yeah. legal conservation voters, which, which, you know, big green, however helpful it is, I think they do face this choice where, I mean, we'll see, but my, my hunch is that there aren't going to be immigrant justice and racial justice organizations you know, saying, you know, how excited they are to work with the Trump presidency. <laughs> um, hard, hard, to, hard to see that happening. Hard to see it happening. And so where do they stand? I mean, does NRDC, LCD, CCL, do they all, you know, get behind some sort of emaciated carbon tax proposal that they think will appeal to, to the right, the sort of left wing of, of Donald Trump's coalition, which is a crazy thing to say. I, I think we'll see. I mean, they might just become irrelevant. So many of these organizations' project is attached to this kind of like Clintonite third way of thinking where you can just kind of triangulate your way to climate policy 
Uh, and, and I think that there might not be room for that. And, and part of the situation that we're in now is that there is this real question of what does realignment within the Democratic Party look like? And I think a crucial part of that should be climate policy. And the League of Conservation Voters should not be in charge of that. Uh, there should be more progressive voices who are actually progressives, which many of these organizations actually are not, uh, who, who are deciding, you know, what does um, climate policy under this new democratic program look like? Uh, and, and I think these, if, if that project sort of goes forward, which I hope it does, uh, I think these organizations start to become more and more relevant as time goes on, and hopefully we get to redistribute their resources. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's not even, I mean, it's not just the party, right? But there is a lot of money parked in civil society, a lot of grant money. Uh, and, you know, I mean, like no one here, no illusions, right? Grant money is not going to make the revolution at the same time. When you have a ton of people in very precarious situations, you know, a little bit of that grant money, like why waste it on? Yeah. So I made a joke about the fear. Okay, that was in bad taste. I mean, Trump is not that. There are a lot of reasons why he's not that. But uh, there obviously, there's a certain like thematic situation here, which cannot be denied. But that... Call it a Mussolini. Because <laughs> of Mussolini, except like not in good shape comparatively, and every, not as like strong on technological progress for better or worse. Not as strong on, on cynicism. Yeah, not as strong on, on cynicism. Also, I didn't even go to war. Where Mussolini at least had the decency to shoot himself in the foot with a rifle malfunction, so wounded at his own hand, but nevertheless did show up. The trophy. Certainly, certainly not a former communist. Certainly not a former communist. <laughs> no, but a former golf partner of Hillary Clinton, which which to Fox News is almost almost as bad. Um. So, yes, yeah, so I guess my take, you know, on this question, Kate, of the big green groups more broadly is like, okay, here's how I see things. Like, the situation is bad, but it is not, the thing about it which is not, like, indefinitely, infinitely bad, again, thinking here just abstracted from all kinds of really horrible things that are going to happen, obviously, but, you know, in two years there's a midterm election, even, I mean, anybody, any new president who's unpopular is going to get clobbered in the midterms. I mean, Hillary, had she been elected, would be looking at virtual political annihilation. I think Trump is going to run a totally useless administration all over the place. I mean, it's just going to get destroyed. So you, you could imagine in a somewhat optimistic but really realistic scenario, by 2018, the wheels are off this thing. It's, it's over. Like, the Democrats got a majority in the House, majority in the Senate, uh, possibly supermajority, who knows. But I think we have to think that anything is possible right now. And at that point, you then have potentially two years of just gridlock or an attempt on the sort of Republican model in the Clinton years to try to govern from below, you know, quote unquote below, we mean the other houses, uh, you know, the House of Representatives, the Senate, Ruth Bader Ginsburg taking all kinds of experimental nutritional supplements to try to stay alive, you know, this kind of thing. Um, yeah, but we really... Get some of Peter Thiel's blood. Yeah. Some real bipartisan coalition. <laughs> yeah, Peter Thiel's blood is probably... I'm, I'm sucking the blood of the Got year. some incredible enzymes. I mean, it probably, in fact, is just kombucha. But um, so anyway, so... Uh, so why, like, why would anybody cooperate with Trump? Like, you really just have to get two years in. You need to destroy this administration, just destroy this administration, and take back power in the House, in the Senate. We're not even, I mean, forget about Republican, Democrat. I mean, the Trump thing is this, is this sort of, like, unique evil. Destroy that in two years. And then after that, you run a, an alternative campaign from the ins And that, I mean, I guess, I guess what my point is, like, two years in, yeah, then you come up with a carbon tax, which is, Carbon tax, 75% rebate, 25% investment. It's the kind of progressive thing we've been talking about. You know, made really significantly progressive, both in terms of the money back in the pocket, but also the, the infrastructure, the investments in environmental justice communities. And then at that point, okay, then you see, then you go up to Trump and you give him the bill and he can sign it or not. But why you would cooperate with Trump when he's got the full, all three levels of government Republican, to, to me is insane. Like just destroy this thing. And then two years in, you start to basically set up the program for the next uh, administration. I mean, I don't know. Is this is this like too cynical? No, no, no. I think I think that that's right. I mean, the the prospect that any organization which were to try to call to call itself progressive would work with Trump is absurd. <laughs> Anyone would kind of cooperate with his administration is crazy. I mean, the, the the task really should be just blocking everything he tries to put out, which will be reliably awful, uh, and making the U.S. ungovernable. I mean. <laughs> You know, we haven't exactly had a functional Congress for the last eight years, or since 2010, at least. And, you know, part of the reason that was frustrating is because Obama did, you know, have some sort of uh, progressive policies that, that would have been good if they passed through, um, if, if they did pass through Congress and they were getting, you know, blocked by Republicans there. 
but we don't actually want anything that Trump puts out to get passed. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want a functional Trump government. We want a very unfunctional Trump government, A, to show how inept he is, and B, to stop really regressive shit from going through. Um, and that's key. I mean, there's the performative aspect, but that's this. It's not the, the primary consideration exactly what you're saying, Kate, right? Like, the stuff that's going to be coming down the pipeline is bad. Right. Just got to, like, break that pipeline. Literal pipelines. <laughs> Literal pipelines. Coming down the pipeline. And I think we have to, I mean, you know, it is worth saying, like, the, a strategy of refusal, and it has to be thought, is going to be, for a lot of individuals, hard. Like, I mean, I'm just thinking, this is totally self, you know, here I am, so I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, and like many major universities, but any, any university really is all fully embedded in the network of governance, you know, so like, we are having, you know, in the next couple of weeks coming through Penn, the head of DARPA, uh, right, who conducts research for the military, but much of which, you know, yields technological advances important to the green economy. Um, you know, we're having people from the State Department, like, so the UN had this habitat meeting on human settlements and passed the agenda for urban development, which is not bad, includes the right to the city, at least mentioned. And, and you have the sustainable development goals. Um, and the, so the, you know, UN Habitat and the, the whole sustainable development goal agenda, I mean, you know, a huge number of things that say happen in the world, we don't think of as being American at all, but nonetheless require some amount of kind of acceptance or even often like a little bit of a nudge of support from things like the US State Department. And those departments are then in turn entwined with places like Penn. That's what I'm, I'm kind of getting towards. And so, you know, there is, I, I mean, there is refusal ultimately does end up potentially means puts a lot of people in a very strange situation and it's not just that ending the government means ending the bad policies which get written about in the new york times right but you are really looking at a very intense crisis mm -hmm. but it's not that it's caused by the refusal because again trump everywhere you go this entire government will be will be awful but we are um it's i guess it's hard to it's hard at the level of abstraction to to know that this is actually going to be like a day-by-day -day trench right. trench battle as it should be as it must be right. as it must be I think part of the... Uh, and there will be costs, and everybody will feel them. Yeah, and, and part of the challenge, too, with looking at this moment of realignment and with the left actually being more relevant and, and bigger uh, than it's been in a long time, uh, which is the kind of strange, strange constellation prize, as we said, um, is that we actually have to show ourselves as capable of governance, right? And that there are kind of progressive champions, some of whom were just elected to Congress, people like Pramila Jayapal, uh, who, you know, are in government now. There are progressive mayors and city council members. Uh, and I think we have to really support those people over the next couple of years. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if we feel kind of mixed about some of them uh, and, and show that, you know, we can actually do this. We can make people's lives better uh, on, on a state level, on a local level. And that's going to be hard. Uh, the left doesn't really have as many governing muscles as I think we should. And, and at the same time as we're blocking, we need to be like blocking and resisting on the one hand. Right. And then also like building power and, and making things happen. Right. I mean. At the same time. To me, that doesn't seem as That's fair. I mean, in this kind of theoretical way, there's this, this, yeah. there's this easy kind of coherence to it, which is, you know, you block everything at the federal level because it's mm -hmm. locked down. And then you push forward kind of progressive things at, at the state well, level and the local level. Many of those things are funded federally. So like we saw this, right? The head of this, the of the Democratic uh, State House, I believe, in California, wrote this letter. You know, he's like, nobody cooperates with this administration. At the same time, we are now reviewing exactly which of our programs are federally funded and how to deal with that. I mean, obviously, a lot of that is just going to get cut off. Or I mean, the Trump administration fully will intend to cut off support for a lot of California or any other states' kind of local progressive programs. But it's going to be tricky. But I think you're right. I mean, it's not it's not impossible. No, it is tricky. And I, I think there are, you know, we will have to lean on these kind of like you know, smart sort of economics folks who, who might have been in kind of Hillary's camp uh, for a while, but, you know, we have to put their brains to use and figuring out how do you deal with these super constrained state governments to do things like investment, you know, is it, is it just, you know, you tax the kind of billionaires in their state, in, in your state, what if you don't have that many billionaires in your state to tax uh, in, in, you know, parts of flyover country? You know, I think these are the questions where we need to really be assembling not just the kind of activists and people who are used to these kind of outsider politics, but actually bringing in institutions. You know, I think we have to challenge folks uh, in the kind of progressive institutional world to, to start thinking through uh, these questions of really hard governance and, and, you know, who may have, you know, been in this kind of third way mode before. Uh, but I think, you know, it's an easier case now to make that they should be really lending their support to, to kind of left projects.
So two words, Kate. Popular front. This is what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this, these, you know, so um, I was recently helped to put, a, put together an event in New York City where we were talking about, um, you know, we had a really great progressive, uh, I don't want to out him here because it wasn't a full, you know, um, but anyways, we had a very progressive building engineer, low carbon guy, really rooted in movements, but saying, look, right, it's strange, but sometimes you find yourself at the table with not the billionaires who own the huge buildings per se, but their building managers. And who are saying, listen, like our guys do not want to get, you know, murdered again in the press this year. Let's do something to decarbonize these buildings and let's waste a bunch of money on experiments in the big buildings so that when it comes down to ultimately NYCHA, you know, as New York City public housing buildings or smaller buildings, at that point, the technology has been kind of perfected. So why not waste the money of the big landlords on the tech experiments to then kind of to refine it? And anyways, I guess the, the idea of what I'm just saying is, yeah, like it's in the air, strange bedfellows and it's uncomfortable. Um, and I don't think um, I I don't know which I mean I don't think anybody's advocating like yeah just go full steam ahead but it's got to be it's got to be attempted it's got to be worked with I mean it's there sometimes it will work and sometimes it won't obviously um, so I guess Kate I mean I think to again try to pull us back to like our central theme here like we both just keep talking about all these ways in which the situation is so hard and how do you decarbonize the dissent movement like. How in the midst... we mean descent as in yeah not our not our alma or magazine yeah yeah descent magazine of course uh, I'm sure low carbon operation pretty low carbon yeah it's not they're not like shipping out like millions of um, gold plated magazines here but anyway so um <laughs> so we have to, you know we need to keep climate front of mind even though it is so easily not front of mind uh, in in this moment um so I mean that's that's a challenge right like for instance yeah. we talked about all the stuff fire over you know all these challenges and not even there are carbon subset so the, the numbers that you're getting now are something like, unless you believe in an insane technological miracle, rich countries need to be decarbonizing about 8 to 10% per year ad infinitum. Ideally, ideally, if you want like a one-third chance of avoiding catastrophic climate change, so let's not say ideally, to avoid a, a scenario of catastrophic climate change, absent a technological miracle, you really need the rich world at 0% carbon, net carbon, by 2035. Mm -hmm. That's in less than 20 years. And one quarter of those years, one fifth of those years kind of wiped off the map, kind of. There's states, there are all these things in the United States, which is, you know, one of the top emitters in the world, obviously. So that's why the situation sucks with respect to right. climate change. Right, right. That is the problem here. And I don't know, Kate, I mean, I guess like in one sense, there's building the program, maybe, I, you know, like maybe it's about the state. So Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, very problematic, but there is a climate policy. I mean, California, less problematic, again, not perfect. Washington State, we saw a carbon tax effort that was very thin socially and it failed. But is it building examples at the state level over the next few years, which A, keeps the U.S. at some vague level in the game globally, keeps China at the table, keeps India at the table? Is it at the state level, really, state government level, that we advance this project? Is it at the movement level? And if it's both, okay, but like... How many wonderful examples? I mean, there's not. That's there's no script for that, right? Right. right. Three awesome governors and a grassroots <laughs> resistance movement, right, right, right. like together. I mean, okay, like kind of, but it's not like no one's inviting Jerry Brown to uh, potlucks on Sunday in Oakland because he's not that great. Yeah, there's no there there. You're right. There's no easy script for it, and there also aren't that many that many states where this kind of thing, this kind of Wholesale takeover is possible. I mean, New York and California are kind of places where there are more progressives per capita um, than most states in the U.S. And Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Same, yeah. Same experiment there. Our first guest, Simmons Roberts. Right, right, right. And, and that's part of the project, uh, the Republican project that's been so wildly successful is that they've taken over wholesale uh, state governments. Yeah. I mean, I, I forget, there was a great map uh, that, that somebody brought up recently uh, that showed the, the number of states where the entire government is controlled by, you know, a Republican governor, a uh, Republican legislature, uh, and, and virtually none. I think maybe none uh, beside, you know, maybe a handful um, where, uh, you know, Democrats have full control. And so, the Koch brothers writing the laws, right? Like virtually every state right. now has a Koch funded right. secret fund in, in Pennsylvania. It's the Commonwealth Fund or Commonwealth uh, Foundation Organization, whatever it's called, the Commonwealth Blank. Nobody even knows. I mean, virtually nobody knows. That's just a Koch brothers outfit. Right. So I think even we might, you know, even That's have to go. Petro Republicans. 
Petro, yeah, that's good. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I think we might even have to look at smaller scales than that, which is so sort of painful to think about, um, of, of, you know, looking at cities, looking at uh, municipalities or counties or other places where this, these sorts of things can happen. In the last episode, we talked about municipalization, you know, in a major city that could be, you know, point, point a good way forward uh, in, in, in terms of what sort of decarbonization can look like on the on the local level. So I think that's that's one level is to go kind of hyper-local and, and, and try to eke out what ones we can on the state level. Um, I think the other level, too, is thinking about the international scene. Uh, and, and, you know, would be remiss to mention that the COP22, um, the international, um, the, the UN FCCC, uh, UN climate talks uh, are happening uh, right now in, in Marrakesh, Morocco. And hearing from folks there, there's this kind of you know, people are crying and, and really sort of taking this Trump victory hard because, you know, they know all the things that we were just talking about. Uh, they know kind of how hard this makes things. And so there have been various proposals and, and people saying, you know, we're not going to kind of back off um, because Trump is president, because we know we'll enact all of this progressive legislation. Uh, and, and it's, you know, the weight falls even more to the international community uh, to step up and, and meet and expand on their commitments that they made in Paris last year. How possible that is? I don't know. And the, so the, and the progressive, and even not so progressive as in, say, Germany, it's not just that the weight falls in the international community, it falls on the governments and the movements and the policy communities in those countries. And how many times has the American left had to go to other countries and say, could you hold the water for us right. while we lose again? <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Uh, which is kind of humiliating, and I'm not not fully American yet, but so you know, Kate. But this let, let's just I just want to get back for a second on this municipal. So the idea that okay, there's some states, um, California, strongest example, obviously. Um, but then municipalities like London. So we had the guy from London on the on the podcast, and you know maybe this maybe the 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 burden then falls on your shoulders, Kate, because if if Great. the story if the story is. Because then the story becomes one about analogies. Like, so Bill McKibben was on Democracy Now! this morning. So today is, I don't know what it is, November 11th, Dread Day. November 10th, because yeah. tomorrow's Veterans Day or whatever. Remembrance Day in Canada. Um, but so, you know, Bill McKibben was on Democracy Now! And he's like, look, you know, and I don't, I mean, I don't think it's a partial truth, but it's an important one. You know, the climate movement is about stories. We really need to focus on telling these stories that show the intersection of climate, yeah. economics, social racial justice, these, these, these things are all connected and we need to really tell these stories. And he was saying Hillary Clinton would not tell the story of, of North Dakota, uh, Dakota, uh, Standing Rock, Dakota Access Pipeline. But if it is about these analogies, then that means, Kate, that people like you and I guess like me, I'm a sociologist, so less so, but you know, professional storytellers really have to be creative and, and saying, look, here is a city or here is a, uh, a community or, you know, to not just think of these as small bore, but as somehow examples or laboratories. You know, I mean, it's like, how much does, how much do we know about California? Or how much has that story gone out nationally about what California tells us about climate politics? Except for the vague idea that they are like hip and cutting edge or something. So, I mean, maybe, maybe this is this like a four years of storytelling. I mean, I don't know, it's like, that sounds trite, but you know, I don't mean it exactly like that. But like, yeah. we have to kid at that emotional level. I mean, you said this great thing to me, Kate, before we turned on the microphone. Trump created a public. Or like he created an idea of America and of who lived in it through stories. That's not the only thing. No, nobody here is like a strict constructionist or whatever. But, you know, I mean, it's important. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is important. And, and I, you know, can get a little down on storytelling, I think, <laughs> almost ironically because of what my profession is. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he made this really powerful move where he um, told people he was going to make America great again. And, you know, without really much substance behind it, uh, said, you know, you are hurting and I'm going to help you hurt less. And, and it was enough to kind of, um, you know, make people hear something they hadn't heard before. And Clinton was almost the perfect uh, antagonist to that because she is such this embodiment of, of the establishment. Uh, and, and like you said, was unable to tell that story, was unable to tell the story of an America um, that works for everyone, an America in which we all see ourselves. Uh, because it was kind of, and so I heard somebody saying this is a, a, a self-consciously a kind of collection of different interests uh, is what the democratic project has become, uh, the big D democratic project has become uh, over the last, you know, the last 20 years almost. Um, and so, yeah, I think part of it is is storytelling and part of it is, you know, 
having a narrative about the climate crisis, which isn't just about the climate crisis, it's about how people are hurting right now. It's about, you know, stories of resistance, about about telling the stories of, of you know, what's actually happening in the here and now and, and who's going to be hit and, and um, how that how that's going to work and, and, and really, you know, making it clear and communicating that this isn't, you know, some sort of special interest project, that this is something which um, can unite all of us, that can, you know, bring up, bring us all together and take on take on the kind of racism and, and, and bigotry and, and xenophobia um, that's, that's only going to become more apparent in the next couple of years. But I think also the flip side of that is this question of governance and is this question of, you know, showing people that we, we can do this. Like we actually can, um, you know, navigate our way out of this situation and, and, and present sort of real alternatives. I mean, like also part of Trump's appeal wasn't just saying we're going to make America great again. It's a, I'm going to bring your jobs back. Uh, which he's not. I mean, manufacturing will not come back to the U.S. in a substantive way over the next 10 years or, or potentially ever. Uh, the but, only way it'll come back is making the robots that make solar panels. Right. And that's not coming from Trump. Those are robots also. Well, ro- someone's got to make the robots that make the robots that make the... No, I mean, there are. we know in green energy there are jobs, and we talked about yeah. this a couple weeks ago. But yeah, I mean, it, the vision that Trump is selling is, is totally fraudulent. I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking a couple things here, like, What's your point there? You know, I really vividly remember the 2008 acceptance speech that Obama made. I think he was outdoors, actually. He accepted in some huge stadium in Denver or something. And, it, you know, it's interesting to me. Everybody noticed the same thing. The first half of the speech was basically this, like, usual crap about red states, blue states, blah, blah, whatever. I shouldn't say crap, but, I mean, let's be honest. Okay, so <laughs> he says that. And then the second half of the speech is just, like, the meat and potatoes kind of, like, you know, vaguely populist, economic justice, democratic line, you know, jobs, blah, blah, blah. And the reaction from from the pundits was, like, what happened to Obama? Like one half of the speech is exactly what we all loved. And then he just got into all this old fashioned crap and dragging us down and dividing us. And I was like, no, this is actually the, I mean, and again, this back to this point about the tie rods in 2012, like the Obama, someone pointed out today, one of the videos of, of Romney that the Obama campaign put out shows him in front of a Trump plane. You know, it's like this guy laid off a million workers. He's a goddamn millionaire. Yeah. Don't vote for him. Yeah. And they show him walking in front of a Trump and of course, Trump and Romney cooperated in that in that campaign, as we know, in 2012. So, um, but so I think it's easy to forget. I mean, it, the thing is not to lionize the Obama campaigns, but we have gone, we've come so far from even Obama doing ads about tire factories and adding on to his like postpartisan shtick, still that old Democratic populist line. Hillary Clinton not even going there. So that's one. That's the first thing I wanted to get to. And I guess the second one is just like, yeah, like uh, green job. I mean, I don't know. Like, so I'd, I'd be interested in your thought on this, Kate. But I think one could make an argument essentially that okay, you look at the Trump. You look at the, the math, you look at his electorate, and you do not need to convince, you don't need to change the mind of a single Trump voter to win in 2020. I mean, you'd want to, and you would ideally get a few in the Rust Belt, but you really need to pack in 10 million more voters. And to me, like, I would say, you know, with a green jobs uh, and an economic justice program, you were going to lose a few wealthy suburbanites, maybe. You can really get Latinos, uh, Latino voters, black voters, young voters, working class voters excited around a really solid left populist program. And you get to 70 million. And like, you, what do you do about the racists? Like, I mean, it's not that you convert them through, you just beat them. You just outnumber them. You know, there are more than like 120 million people in the United States. So 60 million is not half. Right. More than 120 million adults. So I don't know. I mean, is there a danger that we get, that we fetishize the Trump voter? I think, yeah. I mean, I think that... I, I think mean, we want to beat them in the streets, <laughs> but we also want to beat them at the polls, and we want to, st- you know, but do we have to think, oh, every single person who voted for Trump has to be won over? No. Or we just went over the ones Certainly not. Home? There, there are several... And we're not talking about there. getting blood out of the stone, because we've already seen. Obama got 10 million more in 2008 than Clinton got, right. and the population right. was smaller. And there are plenty of people who don't vote, because they feel, you know, too alienated and, and disenfranchised by yeah. the system to do it. Dozens of millions of people. Right. Yeah, I think there is a real danger of, of fetishizing the Trump voter. I think, you know, if, if we are able to, to make a real proposal around a green, around a green jobs program, if, you know, that's a, a key promise that a lot of politicians in 2018 are making, a lot of progressive politicians are making, uh, I think we will see, you know, a peel off, if it's resonant, a peel off of, of the voters who went for Trump. 
that were really registering discontent with the system in the same way that kind of Brexit voters were, who aren't necessarily hardened racist, who aren't, you know, in their heart of hearts, you know, sexist and, and hate women and all these things, um, but but who, you know, feel like the system doesn't represent them and, and they need, you know, a, a kind of vision, vision forward. But do you mean peel off, like not a chunk off? Just to peel, like a little peel, or is, I mean, is there a vision? It can be, it can be like a, you know, because people have said this was a blue collar revolution. I mean, I think one could possibly make an argument from the left that is like half the Trump constituency yeah, like the is actually begging for Bolshevism, <laughs> and that a real left program will give the Republicans back the white, the white affluent suburbs. Sure, I think there's. I mean, a lot I just of don't know where you're. Yeah, I think I there's a lot of this we, we we don't know. I I think we can predict that a certain number of Trump voters, maybe as many as ten million. Uh, could could kind of come off. But I think there is also this challenge uh, as we're building this kind of left electoral movement project of, you know, building a multiracial movement, which is really hard. <laughs> we don't have very many scripts for. And I think, you know, part of the challenge of, of bringing, uh, you know, a low carbon future to the center, I think, of, of that movement is, you know, getting back to what we were saying earlier, kind of, being able to tell stories about this. And, and, you know, part of the reason why people think of climate change as being a far off concept is because we're systematically unable to recognize the suffering of black people. Uh, in Katrina, it was largely black folks who were affected by it. And then it's largely people of color in this country right now who are being hit by climate change. And, and that's honestly, I think, why we don't treat this as a present threat is because we can't recognize the suffering of people of color in this country. And that's true on many different fronts. It's true when we look at police violence. It's true, uh, you know, when we look at mass incarceration. And it's true when we think about climate change, that, that you really uh, have to have a pretty severe blindness and lack of empathy uh, to not think about climate change as being a racial justice issue. That's absolutely right. I mean, it is... Put that way, it is such a stinging indictment of the way that climate politics have played out in this country in terms of who's been behind it, who's told the stories, what, what kind of a social network climate politics has largely existed in. And so I just, you know, I want to connect this to a, another point I just wanted to get to because I think we're, you know, we're, we're close to the hour here. But, you know, in a way, like, it, you know, the point that you're making, I'm thinking about an article that a a sociologist in my previous department at NYU wrote where people had said, oh, well, actually, you know, uh, you know, black folks did not die as much disproportionately as, as white folks in New Orleans. And he does this kind of ingenious statistical analysis and basically shows that this is not true, but it has to do with kind of proportions of who's older and who's younger, uh, which neighborhoods and so on. And in any case, like, uh, not to get into that all right now, but the the point that you're making has this deep moral resonance and we've not, and we've left that out of climate organizing. But at the same time, it's not just saying, oh, well, just like we feel this way. It's like, and this is the paradox of the whole technocracy, right? It's like social science and climate science tell us the same thing about climate change, which is just like a massive murderous cudgel that starts by hitting the poor and the racialized and eventually comes around to the rest of us. But we know this because of scientific inquiry. And so speaking as a sociologist or a social scientist, uh, scientist, in a sense, uh, you know, someone who works with scientists, like this, you know, the Trump administration is going to come after science. We see this in every in every country when the right comes in, and um, there's got to be some, I think, thought also about how in our movements we can bring those kind of like scientific, not just arguments, but the the people who are have been maybe comfortable, like you said, in the realm of the Clintonianisms or in the realm of the kind of establishment politics, to the extent that there's a policy interface. How do you bring that whole world into contact with roiling, angry social movements? You know, so that it's not like Trump on one side, a kind of social movement left on the other, and then caught in between sort of are these technocrats who just mm -hmm. are not really comfortable with a populism either way. Like mm -hmm. you don't mm -hmm. you don't hear a lot of people who are very good at math. I don't hear a lot of them saying to me, Daniel, how can I become more populist? I'm really interested in populism. You know, I would like to become one. <laughs> that is just not, you know, that's just not the political culture in these realms. And yet what where we are here, Kate, you and I, is not just informed by, let's say, moral commitments, which I think most people have and are usually point generally in the right direction or intuitively, but, you know, this is informed by science and, and socially, how do we kind of build build that into the kind of like social composition, the social network of our movements? So you talked about bringing economists in as well. Again, people who are not usually yeah. asking for tips on populism. Right. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think like populism itself is is maybe kind of an academic concept. It's like people want their lives to be better, you know. And and how do you like attach yourself to a project which seems like it can take? Power? Well, it's, it's an epithet and an academic concept. It's yeah. a real, it's a real mess of a word. <laughs> but right. point taken. Point taken. Right. Yeah, I mean, people want to win. <laughs> Straight up, like, people want to win. Like, a lot of... Well, okay, of, except on the left. Except on the left. There are a lot of people who don't want to win the left, Jill Stein. Uh, <laughs> she said Jill Stein. Under her breath, she said Jill Stein. Yeah, yeah. Who I'm not blaming for this election, mind you. But, yeah, people are feeling trounced. People are feeling beaten right now uh, on, on, you know, all kinds of political spectrum. And I think... There is a real argument to be made in this moment, and maybe not for much longer, when the kind of Cory Bookers and, and Howard Deans of the world start start getting in there and trying to re third way third wayism. Uh, <laughs> kind of it's like the ninth way. Triangulate the try. Do you square it? Like what <laughs> yeah. what happens? Um, the ninth the ninth way. Um, yeah, really sort of postmodern stuff. Uh, yeah, but I think there's a real argument that the left can win, and we saw this happen in Britain, right? It's like, you know, not totally analogous situations, but, uh, you know, the conservatives won against all polling uh, in, in, what was that, 2014, right? 2015. 2015. I don't know, the past is, truly has become a foreign country. You know, <laughs> like, we don't even want migrants from the past in our present anymore. They have to extreme vet historical analogies. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, 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 the labor project, the third way labor project under Tony Blair, uh, was totally defeated, um, in, in leaps and bounds. And so it created the space for Corbyn to step in, uh, and, and sort of reignite labor left. And that's been a complicated project. It's and unfinished. And unfinished. Yeah. Might not win. He might not win in a general election, but he did win kind of labor leadership. Uh, and we'll see how he fares. But, but it did kind of open this way to, um, you know, breathe new life into a party that had long been hollowed out. And, and of course, the kind of roots of the Labour Party are more hopeful than the roots of the Democratic Party. If, you know, this project carries forth, it will be the first truly leftist Democratic Party in, in I think, you know, ever. Um, but but I, I think we can make the argument that we can win in this moment. We can win. I think we can win more. We can go further than Corbyn. Or we don't know how far Corbyn will go, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, I want to... I want to improve upon Corbyn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't know if Corbyn will win, so I guess we don't know. Yeah. But, you know, the, there's it clearly has brought a lot of excitement. Uh, and I, I think we'll hope... You know, Corbyn is kind of an accidental politician, so let's not let's not do that. No, no, no. We, but, we, we can strive for much more than Corbyn. <laughs> yeah, let's get someone really, like, nastily ambitious, but with good politics. I mean, okay, I don't... Well, I mean, you know, anyways. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so, like... Um, you know, I, I want to get some closing thoughts from you, Kate. I, I want to give you the last word. Um, so maybe before that, I guess I would just to re you know, what what is it that gets me out of bed in the morning a little bit? Or like I get my whole body does get out of bed, just not as quickly as it used to. But what is it that gets me out of bed is, is two things. Okay, one, the calendar. You know, I can see 2018. It's like I can see the white of the eyes of 2018. Uh, I'm shooting for, I'm, I'm, I can see it. There is a plan Trump will not get reelected. This thing is going to get derailed fast, and it's going to be hard, but the project is not a hegemonic project even right now. Did not even win the popular vote. Is not going to get reelected. And by 2018, it will be possible to really shut the thing, turn it off, shut it down, um, with enormous costs, but that is inevitable at this point. Um, two, you know, the open question, I think, the open question is, can we environmentalize, can we decarbonize this project of stopping Trump? That is the, the whole, like, I mean, it would be dramatic to say the whole future of humanity depends on whether or not we can do that, but it wouldn't be like 100% wrong. Yeah. In fact, it would, might only be like 4% wrong. So that I think is the, that's the fight, like is to win, is to, to win in a, in a low carbon way, to right. win in a low carbon way. Like there is a, a, some kind of, terrible victory coming can it be a low carbon one and i you know we've outlined some ideas around it um more work to be done so kate take us take us on closing reflections oh god well yeah to i mean to zoom in on that for for just a second um 
yeah, I, I, I think there, there is this challenge uh, of, of, you know, bringing a sort of low carbon vision into this new hegemonic project whose character we really don't know. Uh, and, and part of what gets me out of bed in the morning uh, is that this is really open terrain and people are thinking about this. I've seen certainly more people um, thinking seriously about the climate question who are on the left in the last couple of days than, than whoever did. I mean, because the, the math is just so stark and it's so sort of obvious. And it's more obvious, I think, now than ever how these kind of, you know, this, this you know, three-handed beast of, of racism, sexism, and, you know, there are many, many other, other isms. Um, but, you know, <laughs> this kind of project to uh, create sacrifice zones in our country and our world uh, are really tied together. And, and Trump is a real embodiment of that. And so I think, you know, there is this real sort of chance right now um, to reconfigure how we think about it. The left is more powerful than it's ever been uh, in, in this country. And we have to take that seriously. And, uh, you know, there are many thousands of people in the street, hopefully more uh, in the next several days. And I think it is possible. I mean, that's I, I feel like that's kind of a cop out <laughs> to say that at this point. Um, but to say that, you know, I think we really do um, have this chance and it's going to take a lot of, you know, very smart people over uh, the next several months to, to really articulate um, what a kind of low carbon justice centered project looks like. Uh, that is hegemonic, that is fighting for state power across um, levels of government. And I think, you know, we're better positioned now to do it than we ever have been, because I think the, the, the wool is off, <laughs> right? Like, we, it's very clear, you know, to, to end on a, on a sort of favorite note, um, you know, our choice now is between socialism and barbarism. We do still have a choice. I mean, several, uh, you know, there are many people who voted for barbarism on Tuesday, um, but, but I think there's a growing hunger for the other, for, for socialism, uh, and, and, you know, for, for a left project. And so, you know, that, that's kind of what gives me hope as we're looking forward to the next four years. So this has been an unprecedented impromptu episode of Hot and Bothered. Tweet your sorrow and tweet your hope to hashtag hot bothered podcast. Stay hot. Stay bothered. <laughs>